Bro, that's between you Come and Come on, okay, I'm trying to tell you, I'm talking about you. I'm talking about you. You don't know me, bro. I'm talking about you. Look at my record. Who have I done? Who have I done? What do you mean, have you not done? I'm not saying what you I was going to fight you. Hey, shit happened. That's what I'm saying. So, Andy smoked you. Andy heard Randall. Have you fought Andy? Have you fought Andy? I smoked him. I was smoking. I was smoking. Ain't worried about Andy. I want you. I want you. That's what I'm saying. You're not on my radar. I want you now. I'm not about to be on your radar. I don't want you. I'm in the top. I don't want you. Hey and welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where I don't know about you guys but it's all catching up to me now. Like December's normally a mad month for nights out, lack of sleep, um, deferred and delayed hangovers, illness, all that sort of stuff and it's just been carnage on my body and my immune system so bear with me. If my voice starts to get a bit um, off, now you know why. I'm not feeling at my best but I did promise a part two and I've got to deliver that part two. So here we go, guys. You know, it's been worth it, though. On a side note, we should have more months like December where you get to catch up with people and have a laugh and just be around, ideally, the guys that you've known the longest, have a laugh and a joke. It's just been nice to to be around good people. Um, it's always life-affirming and good for the spirit, so I give thanks for that. I'm paying for it like nobody's business, though. So as I said before, please just bear with me. So if you think about where we left um, part one, we were talking more around what's really wrong, what's rotten in British boxing. That means we don't produce guys that are at the level. And what I mean by the level is when we put a guy up at world level, we normally sneak them in. Um, It's trinket belts, uh, you know, WBA continental, WBA intercontinental WBC um, Continental, WBO Global, um, all of these kind of trinket belts that keep all the sanctioning bodies happy, but as fans, they tell us nothing. But you see what these belts have done is they've allowed promoters to to take their fighters in directions that aren't fan-friendly, yeah, with the aim of, well, we'll just get them into a mandatory position and we get our money out of it. But what that does is it means it means two things. Number one, fighters don't really learn. But secondly, and most importantly, it means that you don't build natural rivalries. So I'm going to give you an example of why I say what I say. Let's take Conor Ben. Who are Conor Ben's natural rivals at welterweight? You know, we're hearing the Eubank fight's dead. So if the Eubank fight's dead, who, who can he fall back on and say, well, I could just make a fight with this guy? He'll be on the phone to Kel Brook he'd be on the phone to Liam Smith begging for an opportunity because he hasn't built natural rivals because they did everything they could to avoid people like David Avanessian, um, Josh Kelly, Chris Congo, Harry Scarf, all guys I think Conor Ben could have given trouble to. 
and he avoided that opportunity. So now he's in no man's land, like a lot of the Metrum guys, because they haven't gone the domestic route. But what that domestic route would do is, you know, providing you're matched correctly and fairly, if you fight for an area title, you're against a, a peer, potential rival. You fight for an English or Commonwealth, you're against a peer or potential rival, and the same with the British. Or at least when you fight at the higher levels, like British and Commonwealth, you might be fighting a good fighter on the way down, but you get to learn. And a lot of our guys are not getting that experience anymore because we're in such a rush to get them to a level they're not equipped for. And this is all a symptom of boxing not being coordinated and centrally controlled. And this is true in the pros and it's true in the amateurs. Um, there's a back and forth on Facebook at the moment where we're looking at, are there too many box cups? Are boxing clubs hiding behind box cups and saying, well, it means we don't have to stamp up our own money to do our club shows? Now, I don't know the right answer to this, but the number of club shows is down. I remember kids were fighting. If you wanted to fight twice a week, in theory, you could if you managed it properly, right? The, the days of kids like Martin McDonough fighting 26 times in a year. They seem like such a long time ago, and it probably is a long time ago now. And that's why we're seeing kids frustrated because the amateur system's not giving them the fights they need, jumping into the pros before they're ready, making their mistakes on TV. So the professional system, instead of receiving fighters and nurturing them and developing them, is receiving fighters that it's having to teach. So a lot of times it's just spitting guys out because it's like, well... If you're not good at this level, when are you going to be good? And look at the defeats you're seeing. Um, you're seeing a lot on Queensbury, seeing a lot on Matchroom. Peter McGrail wiped out. Um, we saw what happened to Dennis McCann. We've seen what's happened to a lot of these supposed superstar prospects because they've never been to Helen back. And as boxing fans, and actually, no, actually, forget boxing fans, as people in the sport, we're the problem sometimes because we talk up what we have before we can show the evidence behind that. You know, if I sit and I talk to a kid and go, oh, look, mate, got a kid in the gym, you'd pay to watch him spar. No, I wouldn't. Just shut, shut up. I wouldn't. Right? I wouldn't. Because if he was that good, he'd be signed. There are a handful of kids who are like that in our sport, but they're not many. And it's frustrating and it's annoying because... People in boxing love to keep it as a closed shop, right? You know what I mean? The ringleaders of this are the people I class as tracksuit wallies. You know who I'm on about. And they like that. You know, they oversell who they've got. They oversell what's possible. But they can never show you the attributes that are battle-tested because our amateurs are not battle-tested. Yeah? The biggest frustration, if you talk to amateur kids now, is they spar the same kids in their gym week in, week out. They don't go out to spa anymore. These kids aren't going out to spa. They're not spending time, you know, at other clubs. Interclub sparring is a, is a dying phenomenon, which is a real shame. Definitely in London. If it's happening elsewhere, then guys, let me know. And congratulations to you. But in London, it's dying. So what you end up having is kids hopping gyms. And then head coaches get annoyed because, you know, you're not meant to just hop gyms like that. But you have to do that just to get 
different experiences and learn different things because most coaches don't want to do that. Actually, most coaches don't know what the hell they're doing. You know, the, the old timers, the OGs, the guys who knew how to develop fighters, few and far between now, which is a massive disappointment. So kids are turning pro, not having enough fights to have natural rivals, not having enough fights for us to see them go to hell and back. Not having enough fights to, to build attention and awareness. So they go into the pro game as green as they were in the amateur game. And then we wonder why you're having to fight people who are literally there to throw themselves on the floor. And then when they do step up, they get taken apart. Because we're not pre-selecting for toughness anymore. Who's the last boxer? anyone has seen who has a reputation for real toughness where you feel that they'd be unbreakable you won't and we're seeing it at the top level Fury getting dropped by Ngannou should be a wake up call Joshua getting torn apart by Ruiz in that first fight should be a wake up call Joshua getting torn apart by Usyk in, in their first fight should be a wake up call Usyk being able to still hang with Joshua in the second fight is a wake-up call. We don't have dogs of war amongst our professional ranks. I think we do amongst our women. I think our women are showing that fighting spirit in a way that the men aren't, but we don't have that anymore. But until boxing fans demand their boxers go the traditional route, let's start filtering out the dross at domestic level before we send them abroad. You should have to earn the right to box outside of this country. And I don't think you do right now. Like Peter McGrail went to America to get starched. We could have done that here. You see what I mean? We could have done that here. Like I don't imagine Peter McGrail sold many tickets <laughs> to fight in America. So he could have done that here. And we could have just found out like we did with the, with the Burtley lot. But until people start asking the questions that I'm asking today, why aren't our kids sparring each other? Why aren't they getting 15, 20 fights a year? Why can I just throw a kid into the ABAs? Why can I just throw a kid into any tournament that I want without there being a quality check? Isn't that the job of the, reg the, the regional, um, what do you call them? The regional centers. So like if you take London boxing, they should look at the entrance for the, for the ABAs and go, nah, a couple of these kids ain't good enough. And say, that, well, you can't enter them. We should do that. There should be a quality check at that level that says these guys aren't good enough. Because what ends up happening is people just take a chance. Like, well, do you know what? Let me throw my kid in there. He's in an awkward weight class. There's not many people around. He may get out the Londons into the quarterfinals on buys. And then you can say, I had an ABA quarterfinalist. Kid hasn't fought once. As soon as he fights, he gets put down. People are genuinely playing that game. It's easier to play like in the Southwest. If you've got a super heavyweight in the Southwest, he's probably going to get to the quarters anyway. And these are the games that coaches are playing to, to boost their own reputation, you know, to look good on social media. They're not doing it for the benefit of the sport. And I wish they were because we're in a really, really dark place. And I think that's probably the best place to, to leave that. I'll come on to the amateur side at the end because I do want to talk about our club show and, you know, I mean, kind of enjoyed that. So I should... I should zero in on that. But I want to talk about this Riyadh season. Um, what they call it? The Day of Reckoning. Because it hasn't garnered much mainstream attention. The public seemingly don't care about Day of Reckoning. 
when you spend this much money on an event, you want it to, to cut through. You want it to become part of the, the public discussion. And it, it, depending on what happens on Saturday, it might still do that. But right now, who really cares? Okay? you got Joshua on his corporate best behavior. You've got Wilder on his kind of semi-corporate best behavior. And then you've got Jarrell Miller, who's single-handedly carrying the energy for this thing. Like, if he doesn't get a, a bonus for drawing attention to this, that would be a real shame. Because everyone else is just proving how devoid of personality and character they are. You know, it's, it is literally the worst advert for boxing I can think of. You saw all the corporate yes-men fly out, the camera jockeys all flying out. Um, just basically a bunch of Normans, right? Just a bunch of Normans out there. Not really building up the fight, not making anyone excited to watch it because no one's excited about boxing anymore. And so we've got, what's it, eight fights that no one cares about. The fight that's of most interest, if we're being brutally honest, is Dubois versus Gerald Miller because that's the fight you can really class as a crossroads fight. I, I wouldn't say AJ Wallen's a crossroads fight because if Joshua loses, I'll find a way back for him. They'll, they'll just call Dillian and I'll make the fight. If Wallen loses, he's an opponent to someone somewhere. So that's not a crossroads fight. Wilder versus Parker will be so one-sided, it won't change anything. Um, you, look at, you look at something like Opataya versus Zorro, and as much as I'm happy that Els gets to make some money, it's not even for a belt. So what's the point? But you've got all of these bodies, you've got all of this mass of humanity in Saudi Arabia, literally on a jolly. On all expenses, trip, I mean, bitter winter sun, it's a jolly. Um, none of them are really trying to add value here. It's all by numbers. Um, I was talking to Porky earlier this morning. I don't think I'll watch it. Apart from Dubois versus Miller, I will watch that because I care about that fight. Um, because I'm becoming a big Miller fan. And people say he's a drug cheat, but then a lot of people's favorite heavyweights are drug cheat. And no one talks about that. That seems to have been conveniently forgotten. Yeah, because he failed two tests, if you remember, Nandrolone and the cocaine. So if we can allow him back in the fold, we can allow Jarrell Miller. And when Miller comes, what I like about Miller is he's got balls of steel. Now, I don't know if that's real or not. We'll find out against Dubois. But he strikes me as a guy who will throw down with anyone. And you've seen him pressuring Joshua in fight week, which is the right thing to do because he's got his business head on because he's thinking, if I beat Dubois, I want Joshua. And Hearn's now, goes, and Hearn's backpedaling a bit now because Hearn was like, I'll never work with Gerard Miller again. But he's seeing that Joshua's running out of viable opponents. This feels like Hulk Hogan in the late 80s. You know, you fought Big John Studd, King Kong Bundy. Um, I think he'd fought the million dollar man, Ted DiBiase as well. So they had to start creating new villains for him. Mr. Perfect. Uh, who else did he fight? Earthquake. Sergeant Slaughter. Uh, Yokozuna. He had to start. You have to keep creating monsters for your cash cow. And maybe Jerome Miller's another, ca uh, another monster for Hearn's cash cow. Failing that, you could have Wilder versus Miller. But Miller Miller winning, I think, would be good for the event because it's just going to be more entertaining.
you know, last week I talked about backing the Brit. This week I'm just like, I've got to think about what's best for boxing. But it doesn't look like Riyadh season's cut through into the mainstream. No one's really interested. I think sometimes, you know, the Saudi Association can be good, but they didn't leverage it. Like, they own Newcastle, and they don't use that as a leverage point. So I don't really know how they want to run this as a business. I wish them all the best. I, I just don't think this was an event that was needed because none of the heavyweight titles are on display or even up for grabs. You know, there's only one fight we want to see now, which is the undisputed fight, or Joshua versus Wilder. So this is, is kind of getting in the way of that. But people get a, an end-of-year payday, and I say good luck to them. But I want to talk broader, actually, because I think in December... We've seen, we've seen a, we would have seen a fair few guys who at various points have been touted as potentially the guy, Anthony Joshua, um, Daniel Dubois. We can throw Tony Yoker in that mix as well. I don't know if I want to go back to, to Joe Joyce. We might touch on Joe, but if you look at those three, yeah. And I, I've said at various points, I think those three could be the real deal. And we're still questioning that a few years into all of their respective careers. Like These aren't novice pros anymore. But if you look at what unites them, they've all changed trainers. They seem to move around trainers a fair bit. And I'm wondering, is that a good thing? But I want to start with Joshua and Yoka, both Olympic gold medalists. I wonder who's got the least debatable gold medal. You know, who was the most deserving of the two to win the gold medal? Answers on a postcard, please, guys. But what's happened in both careers is they've, seem, they've seemingly become paralyzed by... I don't know if it's necessarily complexity, but it feels like complexity. But it feels like complexity has come from two different sources. In Joshua's case, he's just added more complexity to what was a simple game plan, right? Joshua's game plan was really simple. Whereas in Yoka's case, they've taken away from what was a really simple game plan. And that void has sucked in a load of complexity from other stuff that he's trying to do because he's lost. Now, both guys, Joshua and Yoka, are products of their system, right? Joshua's a, a kid from the fringes of London who tried to be all things to all people. McCracken got hold of him and simplified his approach. And I look at Yoka and I say, Yoka's the classic European boxer. It's all off the one-two, um, foot movement in, out. That's what he does, but also deceptively strong. He doesn't look like he should be the strongest, but you rarely see him moved around and you rarely see him bullied. But here's the most important thing about Yoka. He's taken all of his beatings. He hasn't tapped out. He hasn't bottled it. He's taken all of his beatings. All those three defeats he took. Even when he's been dropped, he's taken it. Now, let's start with Joshua. The McCracken system was really, really basic but effective. And it was a realization that Joshua wasn't the most powerful, wasn't the fastest, wasn't the most skillful, not the best engine, not the best chin, not the best heart. 
But if you were to find someone who's kind of the Mason Mount of the heavyweight division, where he can do everything to like a, a good level, uh, like, like Solomon Kalou's another example, underrated guys who just do everything well above average, but nothing stands out. Josh is probably that guy. So McCracken has said, you hit hard enough and you're fast enough that you're going to scare people. Let's see how far we can get just being a high work rate guy, a lot of volume. And it worked. And it worked. And it worked. And it worked. Until till he got to Vlad. And Vlad had seen it all before. And Vlad knew how to tame the young pup. It took him four and a half rounds to really tame him. But once he did that, you saw Vlad start to rise as his fitness came back and his sharpness came back in the fight. And after that, it's almost as if Joshua said to himself, there was something missing. Instead of actually looking at that going, wow, this is how we should do things. And he was never as gung-ho. Now, maybe that's not the right expression. He was never as gung-ho after that. And he tried to do different things and he tried to be a counter-puncher and he tried to manage distance and he tried to do all of these things that hadn't been tried up until this point. We hadn't really seen them tried. And they didn't look like things that McCracken normally teaches in his boxes. We know Rob is, you know, strength, work rate, fitness, all of that sort of stuff. It's, there's no nuance to it. But you saw over time, Josh just started bringing people like Angel Fernandez, Joby Clayton, seemingly to bring him that, that slick, skillful style that he, and maybe in his own head, he aspires to. But it just seemed to confuse him. So against Ruiz, when he was there with his low left hand, and you're thinking, you're there with your low left hand, but you're not creating distance so that you're out of range. You're just staying in range with your hand down, like Ruiz isn't going to time that at some point or set you up. And so you start to see the seeds of that confusion and that complexity. All of a sudden, he's doing stuff that's not natural to him. And for me, I'm a big believer in you do what's natural to you. And so as you've seen Josh's career go, they've had to find him opponents that allow him to be confused. And they got away with it until Usyk. Like you can't be confused against Usyk because Usyk is so in control of his fight strategy and how he boxes. He doesn't deviate. You're not going to see Usyk change trainers four or five times. He knows what he does and he does a lot of it. And Josh's response to two defeats was to add more complexity. Yeah, we're going to go to America. Now we're in Riyadh season and he's with Ben Davison, adding more complexity to what was a very simple game plan under McCracken, a game plan he could easily understand. This isn't about intelligence. This is about when the pressure's on, the fewer tools you have to use, the better you're going to use those tools. And he's overloaded his boxing brain with tools that A, he doesn't understand and B, aren't relevant to who and what he is as a person. Because if you notice, when Joshua feels under pressure, he goes back to the McCracken stuff. He doesn't go, he doesn't go to the Angel Fernandez stuff. He doesn't go to the Joby Clayton stuff. He goes to the McCracken stuff because at the bottom of his brain, he knows 
That's what's always worked for him. It didn't let him down. That gets forgotten a lot in boxing. The fact that that thing that's at the base of your brain, that the raw naked instinct is what's most important because that's what you're always going to go to under pressure. Let's flip it around and let's talk about Tony Yoka. So Tony, Tony Yoka wins the Olympic gold. Now, however you want to debate it, oh, he didn't do this, he didn't do that, Joe won it, whatever. The fact is he's got the Olympic gold medal around his waist. I find his neck, not his waist. Right? And how did he do that? He literally won an Olympic gold medal on a 1-2. Yeah? 1-2, step in, shove the other guy back because he was stronger. 1-2 again. The problem is that, that doesn't work against Joe because Joe throws too many shots. But that's Tony Yoka. He's won so much doing that. Like his amateur prowess is more impressive than Joshua's. He's done so much. Throwing that long one-two and his arms are unbelievably long. And so he starts his pro career. Makes an absolute killing doing it. It's not spectacular, it's not glamorous, but he broke people down. Then we heard, yeah, he's going to train with Virgil Hunter. Okay. And you started to see that kind of wardness to him, right? You know, he was posturing up like Ward does. And it was almost like the Andre Ward playbook in a heavyweight. And when I saw that, it was a red flag to me because, and I've, I've said this on my show, I've said it on The New Age, I've said it numerous times. Virgil Hunter had 20 years to get Ward to do that. Yeah, 20 years. You've got maybe six months to a year tops with Yoka. And seemingly when he was on that um, drug ban, he wasn't working on his skills. He wasn't working on anything, it would seem, because he started to go backwards. Or maybe that's when it went wrong. Maybe that he was learning too much. Because if you look at his last four fights, for sure, he went away from what made Yoka good. What made Yoka really good, and you can break it down, is, is there in the De Harper's fight. And the De Harper's fight was a hard fight for where he was in his career. That was a step-up fight. And you've got to give him credit for stepping up. We don't give people enough credit for stepping up. And he did. And he stopped De Harper's. Stoppage is debatable, but aren't they all? But Yoka's formula was so simple. It was a one-two, a savage jab, one-two, you know, break you down with those shots because they don't look hard. But you always saw people go, ah, maybe I don't want that. Guys like Christian Hammer just didn't want that. And these are the same guys that were taking jabs off guys like David Price. So we know Yoka's got something in those hands. And so Yoka's approach was one-two and... He'd smother the counters, so you couldn't even counter off that one-two. And then once distance was created, he could go straight back to it. And it was monotonous, but so effective for him. And he rose and he rose and he rose and he rose and he rose. And it's almost as if once he got to the west coast of the United States, they took that away from him. You know, when he had his enforced ban, maybe at that point, they overloaded him. But they took away his greatest ever weapon, which was that one-two. So you saw against Takam, he couldn't get it off. Bacoli couldn't get it off. Uh, Riyad Murray couldn't get it off. 
didn't even try and do it. And it was worrying because that post-doping yoker tried to be a counterpuncher. And you look at him and go, I don't know if you can read fights that well to be doing that. You know? And also, no one likes counterpunchers in the heavyweight division unless it's a Van der Holyfield. Yeah? It was just single shots. He wasn't throwing the volume that we were used to seeing Yoka throwing. And, and what it did, and here's what it did. Here's what that paralysis did. So you look at, if you're Yoka's opponent, you're like, how do I get past that jab? And if I can get past that jab, how do I get past the one, two? And I speak as someone who was there with, with Big Joe, uh, Big Joe Jekyll, before he fought Yoka during the pandemic. And we were preparing for that. And like Big Joe said, it's easier said than done. And Joe's a big guy, by the way. Like, I think he'd match Yoka for reach. But look at how Yoka busted him up. And Joe's tough. So, I mean, Joe's tough. And he got busted up in there. We lost that Yoka. Just off the one-two. One-two in, bully you about. One-two in. And then when he's got you softened up and you're kind of demoralized then he starts to throw uppercuts and hooks it was a it was effective he was almost like the the modern day Klitschko in that he just had a very simple but effective formula that could have got him very far and it seems that every time he trained with someone they took him away from that you know you got to add this you got to do that and it wasn't because he needed to it's because they wanted him to do that and now you're three defeats down the line and your supposed golden boy's cooked. And now he's with Don Charles. And Don's got that question of, does Don go back to what worked for Tony? Or does Don try and build something? I'm not here to advise Don. Don is far more experienced than I am. And I, as a trainer, as a man in boxing, as an elder, I respect Don greatly. So I won't be there giving him, I don't tell him what to do. I can tell you what I'd like to see. I'd like to see Yoko going back to throwing lots of jabs and one-twos. I think if Tony can go back down to being 245 pounds and just working off those, those simple shots, and then what comes after that comes after that. But stop looking for counter-left hooks. Stop trying to step back, you know. Just stop trying to step back, uppercut, and all that sort of clever stuff that we don't want to see heavyweights do. If you can do it naturally like Riddick Bowe could, fantastic. But how many times do we see Riddick Bowe dog it out? Even though he had an amazing jab and an amazing one too, he also had the, the nous to dog it out when he had to. Tony's shown that he hasn't. Because what, what, what happened with Bacoli, because Yoko wasn't working at the rate that we're used to seeing him, Bacoli had far more openings. And Bacoli was a big lump. He was like 19, 20 stone then. And he had his natural work rate. So he was able to grind Yoka down. And because Yoka didn't have the jab to keep him at bay or earn his respect, or the one-two to hurt him, Bacoli's confidence kept building and building and building. I saw the same thing when he fought Domak and Ladi. Same thing with Takam. Once Takam saw that there wasn't a jab coming and Yoka was literally just stepping in off a high guard, Takam said, this is easy work for me. There's nothing to fear here. So Yoka took his most feared weapon and parked it. He said, I'm not going to use this. Whether that's a trainer thing, whether that's a Tony thing, I don't know. But will changing trainers fix that? Only if he goes back to what works under pressure. And what works for Yoka under pressure is throwing those one-twos. 
But you see this a lot in boxing, right? When you're training someone, I can teach you, so I'm talking from ground up, first day, yeah? From when you walk through the door. I'm going to teach you everything for two reasons. Number one, it's only fair that you know everything so you can make your own decisions. Number two, how else are you going to pass down the sport of boxing if you don't understand it? Now, what happens over time is we find out what you gravitate towards under pressure. So if we talk about defense, some people under pressure, two hands up, tuck. Yeah, tuck, wait for the opportunity, counter. Other people, as soon as they sense danger, step back, step around. Okay, And there's all sorts of flavors in between. But these are things you will do under pressure naturally. Why am I going to train you against that? Let's, let's create patterns based on what you naturally do. So if you put your hands up naturally, it's like, all right, cool. That's what we're going to start with. But then we've got to slide back and around. If you slide back and around initially, then we say, look, once you've done that, you've got to get your hands up. Sounds simple enough, but these are things you do. Under pressure, what, what do you counter with? Do you counter with your right hand or your left hand? And we build from that. Too many times trainers are trying to reinvent the wheel to show how clever they are. Now with Daniel Dubois, it's different. Because there's more of a completeness to Daniel Dubois in terms of his boxing education and all these sorts of things. Um, but there is a red flag that he spent a lot of time in a lot of different gyms, which worries me, but I can only go off what I saw. And what made Daniel unique on the way up was he could do it all. So he had that kind of Riddick Bow thing where... He could throw the one to slip, throw another backhand, or he could throw a right hand, come down to the body. He could throw all of these combinations. And that's kind of what made him threatening because he was heavy handed and he could throw like this. Because remember, like he's boxed up the weights from like 57 kilos, whatever it was when he was a kid, all the way to where he's at now. Right. So he's used to throwing in punches and bunches. And what it seems is as he turned pro, they took that away from him. And whenever you watch Daniel Dubois, it looks like he's never boxed before. But we know he has and we know he was good. So how has this been allowed to happen? It comes back to something I believe in. Sometimes the trainer you are is not who the fighter needs. No matter what your reputation is, no matter what your facilities are, no matter what contract you signed with them, you're doing more harm than good by training them. I felt that when he went to the Peacock because what Daniel needed at that time was someone who knew how to let their hands go, who believed in letting their hands go because that's what Daniel liked to do. Daniel likes to be a front runner. So you train him to be a front runner. What are the opportunities for you to be a front runner? He could have done that against Joe in the right camp. So they took away his superpower, which was that ability to front run and demoralize opponents. They took that away from him and they tried to turn him into this really basic boxer. Essentially, they tried to turn him into another Frank Bruno. And you can imagine why, because that's all they know. Well, we should do this because it's really basic and we know what we're doing. Okay, cool. So he did that for ages. And it went, look, guys, eye socket broken. Because they don't teach you how to move your head. 
If Daniel Dubois had head movement, he'd be a world champion now. But he's not. And he doesn't move his head. He went to Shane. Still didn't move his head. But he made fewer mistakes. And now he's with Don. And Don's got to show us what the improvement is. Same thing with Yoka. Are you going to go back to what works for Daniel? For me, Daniel Dubois is a guy that has to move his head and let his hands go. He just has to. That's, 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 where, the, that's where the game's going right now. And if he's not able to do that, he's going to get picked off and hurt. Because if he doesn't beat Miller, he's not far off having to fight Tony Yoka. And it's almost like winner leaves, loser leaves town, winner stays on. But you have to go back to what makes Daniel a good boxer. And it's, it's youth and it's mobility because he's, what, 26, 27? He's still young for a heavyweight. But he's sustaining mileage now. So that, that long career we thought he would have, he won't have. And also these young bucks like Moses Atalma are coming through. And they should be learning from this. Like, do not deviate from your superpower. Do not go to a trainer who tells you they've got the answer. If the answer doesn't involve taking what you do naturally and enhancing that. Run, 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 run. Now, this is the complexity of choosing a trainer. You have to have a trainer that says, look, this is what you currently do. A lot of this is what you trust. We don't have to get rid of all of this. We've got to add some stuff. It might be we've got to add head movement. Or it might be we've got to add some footwork. We've got to add some work rate. But why change who a boxer is for what? The levers for success in boxing are so simple. If I up my work rate by 20%, I increase my chances of winning significantly. Doing the same things, by the way. So why wouldn't I just focus on doing that? I can control that. Why do I need a tactical blueprint and you know what I mean have these guys like Lee Wiley watching fights and coloring in screens and saying this is shut up, man, like Jesus. Like it's not that complicated. You know, these guys are losing to coaches who are just coming up with really simple plans, making changes in flight, because there aren't that many variables in boxing. I can change one thing and change the fight. But if you look at those three. They've all arrived at this kind of crossroadsy point in their careers where they want that greatness, but they're not there yet. Right? They've all got it in various ways, and they've all got the potential to do it. But in changing trainers so many times, and it's probably about nine or ten trainers between those guys, you've added complexity and took away what made them really good. You've got to fix them by taking them all the way back to that and saying, actually, the key variables for success are you throw more punches than your opponent and you having a solid defense so you don't take the punishment you're currently taking. In one, in, in one way, actually, doing the first thing almost mitigates the second. And just on a side note, we're going to see what happens with Craig Richards because I think the move to Shane is interesting. You remember, Craig's over 30 now, so you don't want to teach Craig anything. But when boxers call me up and say, what can I do differently? I say, just work 20% harder. Throw 20% more shots in a fight. And you tell me if it's not different. Right? Maybe Shane will just do that with Craig. Say, throw 20% more shots, move 20% more, and see if your performances don't change just by doing that. 
Sometimes the solution is that simple. <laughs> like this coaching thing's not as hard as it's cracked out to be. I'm telling you now, it is not that hard. You know, like I'll I'll observe and I'll listen to MMA coaches like Fira Sahabi, and they'll talk about all that kind of you know the complexities of MMA because there's so many ways you know into an attack and out of an attack and so on and so forth across many different disciplines. So. You may know wrestling, but you might need to understand jiu-jitsu as well because you might end up having to use your wrestling to counter a jiu-jitsu attack or vice versa. So there's a lot more complexity in MMA, so I understand why it is complex. Boxing is two hands. Two hands, two feet, one head. So we don't have many levers we need to pull. It's just knowing what levers drive the greatest value for any individual boxer, and it varies. There's also, and I, I, I'm lucky in that I get to deal with guys from day one. It's also about those inputs you put in the beginning. The idea that it's about what you do under pressure. That's your style. And Joshua will realize this. It's not about how you want to box. It is how your brain wants you to box. How your instincts, your subconscious wants you to box. If you lean into that, if you embrace that, you become a far better boxer for it. And once you discover that, you don't deviate. Guys like James Tony never deviated. Roy Jones never deviated. Hopkins never deviated. Because they knew, these are my instincts, and I'm going to stick to them. And I wish more Brits did that. I wish we had more confidence in what we do to just say, right, we're just going to stick to what we do instinctively and build on that. Now, but the last thing I want to touch on is, so we had a club show on December 14th and for me now now I use these club shows as like a like a benchmark for how far we've come so we had one in 2022 and it was raw like the kids the kids were relying on instinct they were just fighting the way they wanted to fight I hadn't been there long enough to know how people naturally fought and it was informative we we did okay but you left there thinking, okay, there's a lot of headroom to grow into, but we have to do it. And so we've had shows since and kids have fought and they've done what they've done. And so this was a, a useful benchmark to see if there's been a shift in mindset and also just a shift in how the kids are fighting. Now, the first thing to do is actually thank all the clubs. And it's very hard to remember everyone that was there that night, but Definitely got to thank uh, TM Boxing Club, All Stars, Earlsfield, uh, Change the Globe. Who else was there? Joe Morris were there. Um, Annalie Christchurch were there. Don Davis, who we seem to be doing a lot of work with. So credit where credit's due. Um, a club on the rise very quickly. Uh, who else did we have? Peckham Boxing Club, Unitas were there. Um, Archers were there as well. I think we had Selby Boxing Club as well, which is always good. Finchley who are a, a natural rival, as well as Impact. I've probably forgotten one or two clubs, but, you know, thank everyone for showing up. You know, for some it was a fair way to travel. So you all really appreciate that effort. Uh, Shouts out to Coach Kev, as always. Always good to talk to him. Always gives me a unique perspective because he's, he's doing amateur and pro corners currently. So always a nice perspective that he provides. Um, yeah, so we had a good chat. Um, but I loved it this time because 
all I wanted to see this year were performances. So I wanted, I wanted everyone to take what they'd done in training and apply it in a fight. And to a man and a woman, they did. Um, all five of our guys did me proud. All of them. Um, a couple of beautiful stoppages. Um, yeah, really, really good stoppages. And they come from this belief I have, which is just hurt your opponents. Let them know that you can really crack. And definitely in that kind of 0 to 15 bout phase, being game, being strong, and believing in your skills, it will get you a long way. You will win a lot more than you lose by adopting that approach. You know, we've got a couple of young kids who are coming through as well, um, showing so much potential. And these are the things that excite me. But in the back of my head, I'm thinking, how do we turn them into next level talents? You know, what is the environment we have to create that these kids become genuine monsters? Kids who will pull themselves up by the ropes so they can carry on. How do we build that? Because that's going to be a differentiator in the next three years. I think the hunt is going to be for kids who can go to war. Yeah. And you'll, you'll, you'll see promoters, you'll see managers going, show me a kid who's got the mindset of one of those hardened Nicaraguan fighters. Because the rest we can teach, but get me a kid who's been in those environments and thrives on being um, up against it. And that's really where we want to go in the next six months is really getting that, that mindset and also that technical discipline. I'm, I'm a big believer in to be truly elite, you have a low error count. I don't know what else someone's capable of, but you have a really low error count. Because at the top level, everyone can do what everyone else can do. It's about who makes the most mistakes. And so you want to minimize your mistakes and that will normally maximize your opportunities. So with that considered, that's, that's kind of where we're at. And so that's where my thinking is, is, you know, how do we get to that next level? Uh, it's probably more around fitness, um, accumulation of training volume, actually. We did, you know, there's some, some technical challenges around that, but we'll overcome those. But I'm just, I'm proud of the guys. I'm grateful to the Marines for helping us out. I'm grateful for everyone for staying behind afterwards to put the, the chairs away and everything away. Because, you know, it's showing that we're embracing the club standards now. All these sorts of things are good and they fill me with hope for what uh, 2024 brings. You know, and so all you can ever do is say, look, I'm committed to riding the wave for as long as the wave can carry me wherever it's going. But I am grateful for the opportunity. Um, coaches are solid there. Uh, D, Karen, Nathan, Cymax, that's what you call him. Um... Daniela as kind of the the wise older head in the group and then all the fighters too many to list but just everyone that, that did it you know, one of our boxers Charlotte was the MC on the night which I thought was class and I mean she'd never done it before so she acquitted herself really well it's those moments of growth that you love to see because in the pro game the result is everything but in the amateurs the result's kind of a thing but it's more around how that person lives. Will they leave their time in your care better human beings than when they arrived? And if you've done that, you've done your job. You've impacted their life positively. And that's really what we try and do in this game. You know, I moan about all the other stuff, like not enough fights and stuff, but that in-gym stuff is about making people better when they leave than when they arrived. Um, let me tap out at that point. I don't know if I'm going to do an episode after 
Saudi just because it's Christmas. And, yeah, it's family time. I don't want to compromise family times. You know, you guys probably won't even listen to it because I expect you'll be with family and friends too. Don't. It's tricky because I want to say don't use the the downtime in destructive ways, but you never know what people are going through. So I have to say, look, position yourself how you need to position yourself to be happy or to manage through the holiday period. Because I know for some people it can be lonely, some people it can be intense, but let's hope we can all have a good time over this holiday period. You just shut down, you know, park work to the side for a bit. And just think about all the good things you've done this year. Because if you think long and hard enough, they're enough to put a smile on your face. And on that note, let me tap out and say, take care. And God, after this, it's going to be episode 200. <laughs>